What if a king were to leave his throne, his glory, his crown, and come to the earth to walk among us as a man? What if his plan was to restore relationship with men by giving his own life as a sacrifice? And what if he then chose common man to become carriers of that good news and sent them into all the world to share and spread the word? Jesus is that king. Partnering with you is his plan. Hey, good morning. My name is Sanjay Merchant, and uh, I'm now a teaching pastor here. Um, I'm also a um, professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So I really have the honor and opportunity to come and um, visit you as often as I can and to share the word with you and fellowship with you. Um, Scott and I have known each other. We don't exactly remember how long, but it's got to be at least 20 years, and it's been um, a fellowship from a distance for most of it. And he's been really encouraging to me over the years. And so we've known each other as I was pursuing my academic ministry and he was um, continuing to um, grow in his pastoral ministry. And now the Lord's uh, brought this relationship together and I'm really happy for it. I'm really happy to be here and to um, call North Shore my home church now and to, uh, to be able to fellowship with you. Awesome. So... Uh, I want to continue on in our Unlikely series. Last week, uh, Scott started off the series by talking about Moses. Today, we're going to continue on with Judges chapter 6. So the folks with the Bibles are going to come forward. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And we're looking at the passage about Gideon, Judges chapter 6 through 9. So that's going to be our topic this week. Well, uh, as I said, Scott talked about Moses last week, starting with our first unlikely figure, and we see somebody that God uses who we wouldn't expect. Not only do we not expect this person to be used in this way, and certainly Moses himself didn't expect or even initially want to be used in this way, might not expect that person, but we wouldn't necessarily expect God to act in this way through this person. So God is doing some very unlikely things. There's a continued theme in the Old Testament. So we've got one Bible, but it comes in two major parts, the Hebrew part and the Greek part. And there's major themes that run through the whole of it because it's all revealed by God. It's got one source. And the major figure and the major theme of it is Jesus Christ and his work and the salvation that he brings. All of it is about Jesus. And in the Old Testament history, with the people of Israel, uh, we see other themes through various stories, through prophecies. We also have apocalyptic literature and poetry and uh, just a whole hodgepodge of different genres of revelation. Um, we also have historical accounts. Through all of that, we see this repeated theme, and it's about Israel's unfaithfulness and God's continued and really incessant faithfulness towards them. So, In the time of Moses, which we talked about last week, we noticed that Israel failed to obey the Lord in becoming a holy nation, so God had a requirement for them. Israel is in Egypt, in slavery to Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh is a very harsh taskmaster. Their lives are by no means comfortable. Their lives are just as bad as you can imagine what it would be. Um, and as we read in the, the accounts in, 
in Exodus. And God offers to deliver them and tells Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, not so that they should just be free and do whatever they want and make for themselves their own lives. No, that they would come and worship me, that I would be their master. But he is a good master, a liberator, not an oppressor, not a slaveholder, and so he's commanding Pharaoh to let them go. And he does all of these miraculous things, leading these people through the Red Sea. This actually happened in human history, right? This isn't just a fable. God actually parted a Red Sea and the people of Israel passed through that, following a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This whole miraculous deliverance and then leading in them into the promised land is part of their history, something that they know well. And you think, well, now that God has done this for them and in their nation, now they are permanent worshipers of the one true God. Well, that's not exactly how it works. Uh, despite his faithfulness and his deliverance, they failed to obey him. But God had mercy on his people, raising up Joshua to finally lead them into the promised land. And then as God leads them into the promised land, he's faithful to them again, but in the time of Joshua, again, Israel failed to obey the Lord in driving out the Canaanites and their corrupting influence, which we'll talk about with the story of Gideon. But still, God had mercy on his people, and he raised up in that time judges for them to uh, deliver them from their internal enemies. And so one of the judges, of course, is, is Gideon, which we'll get back to. But in the time of the judges, again, Israel failed to obey the Lord and worshiping him alone. But God had mercy on his people, once again, raising up kings to defend them from their internal and external enemies and really solidify and stabilize their nation. And nonetheless, in the time of the kings, Israel again fa uh, failed to obey the Lord in keeping his law. And this led to spiritual and social decay, fracture, collapse. The nation is torn in two and then eventually both the north and the south fall, and the final fall of Jerusalem is to Babylon and the Babylonians sack Jerusalem, burn the temple, and take all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem and, uh, and export them to Babylon. So they're no longer in their land anymore, the land that God had led them into and the land that was theirs. Nonetheless, God had mercy on his people, leading them back to the promised land to await the birth of their future king, who would deliver them from their ultimate enemy, Satan, and lead them into an eternal kingdom where their hearts and relationships would be made holy. So there's this cycle, and the cycle starts with Israel's unfaithfulness. God responds with anger, Israel repents, God has mercy, and the cycle begins again. Um, evidently, God wants us to understand this story. He wants to understand this interplay between himself and his people. Now, the first thing we might ask is, why on earth is Israel unfaithful to God? What good is there to be had in that? You think they learned this story once, twice, three times, four times, repeated times. Why on earth would they do this? What were they thinking? We wouldn't do that. Well, not so fast. <laughs> yeah. Not so fast. Uh, <clears throat> the ancient world is very foreign to us. I mean, first of all, it's translated from Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, into modern English. So all of a sudden, we've got this big barrier between us and them. But it's not just a linguistic barrier, but it's a cultural barrier. I mean, that culture literally doesn't even exist anymore. And those peoples and the way they think, they're not around anymore. And the ways that they worship, the ways that they see the world is totally lost. And it's so strange to us. But in some ways, it's not so foreign. So what 
would help us to really understand them better is to recognize the fact that for them, their civilian life, civil life, their sort of regular life of business and relationships and friendships and civic duty is all tied into religion. There's no separation of church and state for them. There's no notion. Uh, modern secularism is not even a blip on the radar yet. That's not how the ancient world works at all. It works through religious worship that runs all of the systems of the world. So if you wanna enter into business in the ancient world, it's very hard to enter into business and commerce without occasionally bowing down to certain gods and deities that make business possible, that, that make uh, people want to enter into these relationships with you. In other cases, it's a matter of civic duty. It's a matter of national pride and patriotism. And to not bow down and worship these gods is to commit treason. That's gonna make your life very difficult, right? So if we can get by without those things, all the better. And sometimes the people of Israel are tempted to do exactly these things, to venerate these false gods. And because they didn't do what God initially asked them to do was to drive out the Canaanites, the people who lived in these towns and in this promised land, and to clean out the land so that they wouldn't run into these sort of difficulties and that they would be able to, without um, uh, the false worship around them, to have it sort of removed so that they could fully and completely honor Yahweh as he determined. Since they didn't do that, they're stuck in relationship with these Canaanite peoples, and so they begin doing some of the things that the Canaanites do. We find ourselves in a very similar situation, don't we? I mean, in 21st century America, um, some values, certainly some values that we as Christians share with all of our neighbors around us who don't know Christ are very similar. And we can encourage one another in these things. In fact, the modern world has been so influenced by the Christian view of things, we don't even see it anymore. We don't even notice it. The, the idea that children should be valued and are important. The idea that women and men are equals. These are Christian ideas. The idea that no race or ethnicity is superior to another, that comes from the gospel. That does not come out of the ancient world. In the ancient world, it's just fragmented. We've all got our own gods, and let our God go up against your God, we'll see who's stronger, right? So it's a very different way of seeing things. Uh, but yet we do encounter some cultural values that we just can't say amen to. And yet, it's sometimes tempting and even easier to take on certain political views, certain cultural views, that just sort of make our lives easier, make us not seem so weird to them, make us seem more normal to them. And it's, it's very tempting. Also in the ancient world, here's something that we often don't think of, sometimes bowing down and worshiping the idol actually worked. It actually worked. And worshiping Yahweh was difficult. It required sacrifice, and there wasn't always an immediate payoff. The true God gives and takes away. He has more wisdom than that. False gods and liars, kind of like a pyramid scheme, you invest a little bit and you're gonna get an immediate return. And you're like, hey, this is working. Eventually you're gonna get robbed. But at first it seems to work. And they laugh at you for worshiping the true God. It seems as if your prayers aren't answered. But let's try this. This definitely works. And so we encounter those, those same things. So it's a very different world, but there's a lot of similarity. Well, what happens with Israel? Now, the difference between the church and Israel is that Israel's a nation. The church is not a nation. Jesus, of course, said, if my kingdom were an earthly kingdom, my disciples would take up swords. We don't have an army. Israel did. They were a nation with an army. It's a different sort of entity. But when God becomes angry with Israel, 
he allows them to suffer the consequences of their sin. He's angry with them, rightfully so, because they are the bride of Yahweh. Just as Paul tells us that the church is the bride of Christ, Yahweh calls his people Israel, my wife. He says, I am your true husband. And so what happens when Yahweh's wife goes after other gods? She's committed adultery against him, and he rises up in jealous anger, rightly so, because he's been dishonored, he's been insulted. Um, there's not this sense that, eh, knock yourself out, whatever you like, do whatever you like, whatever makes you feel good. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah. You are betrothed to me. He's jealous for his wife, and then secondly, the reason he's jealous for his wife is because when we sin and we betray the true God and go after other gods, we are slowly poisoning ourselves. Even though it seems to work, even though it seems to be soothing, we're slowly killing ourselves. And because he loves his bride, he hates sin. And so he allows us to suffer the consequences of sin. And so I, I first experienced this when I was a young believer. I, um, I didn't know what this felt like. So I became a believer in college, and maybe some of you around the same time did. If it was a little bit later in life for you, maybe you had a similar experience. I lived a life in which I sinned. I did things that I knew were wrong, and I felt a little bit of embarrassment about it. Sometimes I felt a little bit of shame, but I got over it, and I got a little bit hardened to it. And when the Holy Spirit first started working in my life, I remember this, it was kind of a night of crisis. It was um, all within a couple days, and I, I, it was really a, sort of a crisis. I, I had panic moments where I would fall asleep and wake up and not know that the Holy Spirit was working in me, but I was beginning to feel deep grief and eventually repentance for my sin. I didn't even know what that felt like to feel bad about it. I thought something very weird was happening to me, and it was, and it was the Holy Spirit's graciousness to allow me to feel the grief. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, he allowed me to participate in that and to know what I was doing, and guess what that led me to? Repenting and saying I am deeply sorry, and not just sorry, but I'm turning from those old ways, and so that's what God allows to happen with Israel, and so now they're repenting, and what happens? When Israel repents, God is incessant in showing mercy to them, and in our case, if you turn to Judges 6, we see a particular case in which God has mercy on them through Gideon. When he has mercy on them, the first thing he does is he reminds them, I am the God who led you through the Red Sea. Remember that? Remember I already delivered you? And now I'm raising up a new deliverer. And so <clears throat> we see a conversation in, uh, in, in Judges 6 between the angel of the Lord And Gideon, the angel of the Lord or the messenger of Yahweh is this very interesting figure in Old Testament history. We have this word angel or, or messenger. He's sent from Yahweh, comes forth from Yahweh. And so we think, okay, we know what angels are, like Gabriel and Michael. These are biblical angels. They're messengers of God. They're somehow sort of sent by God. They're ministers in God's holy court. He sends them to give a certain message. They're not humans, they're aliens present with us temporarily. And so that's what an angel is. And he speaks on behalf of God. He says that God has sent me. Think of the angel in Revelation. If you remember this, this guy, John the apostle falls down and worships this angel mistakenly because he sees this divine being and he's overwhelmed with it. And the angel says, don't do that. I am a servant just like you, stand up. The angel of the Lord is different. He is not a creature. He speaks as God in the first person. He wields God's authority. He doesn't defer to God, but he himself commands, judges, decrees. 
he speaks again as God. This is God taken on human flesh, present with Gideon. Now what's happening? The Midianites, this Canaanite group, had swept through the land and they have destroyed all the crops, they've taken all the crops, they've taken all the animals, they've driven the Israelites into caves. So they're hiding, they're oppressed. If they pop their heads out, they'll get killed. The Midianites have completely taken over this land. And Gideon is hiding in a wine press, threshing out some wheat. He's gotta eat, he's gotta bake some bread, otherwise he'll starve. And he's hiding in a wine press to do it. Now from what I understand, I don't know anything about this firsthand, but in the ancient world, when you thresh wheat, you'd have to do this on a hilltop where you could get some wind and you'd take these you know, pitchforks, I guess, and you'd throw the whole mass up in the air and it would blow the straw away, it would blow, blow the chaff off, and then the grain would fall. And that's how you get the grain out of the straw, and then you can use that and, and do your baking. Well, he has no opportunity to go up on top of a hill and be seen by the Midianites and captured and killed or enslaved or something like that. So he's hiding. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and he says this, He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, as he's hiding in a a wine press. And Gideon says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, so in other words, he's not exactly sure who this guy is, so uh, excuse me, sir, is what he's saying. Excuse me, sir, if God is with us, why then has this happened to us? Where is God? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us uh, us, and given us into the land of Midian. Or sorry, into the hand of Midian. So this is now the land of the Midianites. Where's God? The angel of the Lord says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? I'm God, I'm sending you. And Gideon says, please, sir, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. So I'm, you got the wrong guy. Uh, my clan is a small, insignificant clan, and we're in a small, insignificant tribe, and this whole country is fractured. And the angel of the Lord says, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And Gideon says, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me that I'm really speaking to God. So then Gideon goes and he cooks a meal. It's in the ancient world, even in the modern world, that's what you would do when somebody comes and visits you from a long journey. Uh, let me go make you some food. So he goes and he cooks up some goat, some bread and some broth, and he brings it to the angel. And the angel of the Lord says, take all of that and put, this, put it on the stone here in front of me and pour the broth over it, which is what he does. And then the angel of the Lord takes the staff in his hand and he touches it and incinerates it and then vanishes from Gideon's sight and continues talking to him so he knows that it was the angel of the Lord, that it was God present with him in that moment. And the Lord then says to him, peace be with you, I will be with you. And so he replaces in that moment his fear and tells him to have peace because he is with him. And so that starts the relationship between uh, Gideon and the Lord. The next thing that the Lord asks him to do is a very difficult thing. He says, now start walking in the commandment that I've given you. This is what I want you to do. Your father, Joash, has put up a pagan idol that I want you to tear down, an idol to Baal and his consort, Ashtoreth. 
So in ancient Canaanite religion, they would often have male and female deities. Um, Paul is gonna say, this is just sort of an aside, Paul is gonna say in the New Testament that there's one God and Father of all. And what does that indicate? That there is no ethnic division, there is no superiority of gender. All are one in Christ. There's neither male nor female, Greek nor barbarian, Jew nor Gentile. But in these ancient religions, we fragment society up into parts. And so you will have a male deity and a female deity. And they're different and distinct. And what do the deities do? Well, they enter into sexual relations. And that is to be reflected in us. And so we take sex, an important part of human society and human life, and we deify it. And we put it up on a pedestal. And a sex-based religion is going to tend towards some very socially abusive things. It's going to tend towards things like ritualized prostitution, sex cults, and eventually child sacrifice. And the reason that they're worshiping fertility is because they want to be fertile. They want the land to be fertile. They want their crops to grow. They want their flocks to grow. They want to have wealth, not because they love God or desire the truth or anything like that, but because they want wealth and prosperity. So deifying fertility and worshiping female and male deities in this way is, they think, is going to be the way that they're going to achieve this. But again, the problem is it's going to, again, turn into a sort of worship of sex, which is going to be degrading to people. It's going to deeply wound and harm us as we begin to practice these things. And Israel is somewhat participating in this. And so what it's doing to Israel, it's beginning to decay them from the inside as they're participating in these sorts of things. Yeah, they're worshiping Yahweh because, yeah, Yahweh delivered us from Egypt. We know that. But also this works too. And this is what people do. And this gets things done. And people expect us to do this. And so they're participating in these other sorts of cults and it's fracturing human relationships, right? And if they had been holy as God commanded them to and been faithful to Yahweh, it would have solidified their relationships. They would have been devoted to one another and cared for one another in a totally different way, such that their national defenses would not have collapsed. They would have trusted one another. They would have been industrious in business in a totally different way, such that their commercial relationships would have been secure. But all of this stuff is broken down <clears throat> by this false worship. Does that make sense? And so there's Gideon. He's got this commandment from the Lord. Go tear down your father Joash's uh, idol. And so he's afraid. Remember, he's, he's a mighty man of valor, so the angel of the Lord says, but he's hiding in a wine press. So he decides to go at night. He doesn't boldly go up in front of the whole town and pull this thing down, <clears throat> the sort of center of the town's identity. He goes at night, and he sort of does this nighttime uh, vandalism and destroys it. And in the morning, he's hoping nobody knows, but they know who it is. Who did this? Who tore down the idol? Who destroyed the altar? It was Gideon, the son of Joash. So they go to Gideon's father, Joash, and they say, bring your son out. We're going to execute him. Do you see what he did? You might think, that's pretty harsh, but I mean, can you imagine here in Everett or perhaps in the United States, uh, a center of our community, a center of our identity, somebody coming and vandalizing that and tearing it down and destroying it. It's a direct shot at who we are. It's a, a direct offense to us as a people. And so that's what he's done. He's immediately and directly offended them. And so how does Joash respond? He says, if Baal is a true God, let him defend himself. That's a very bold thing for his father to do. Now, his father put up the idol, 
So apparently he thinks that it can work and we can use these things, but when it comes down to either defending the idol or defending his son, uh, well, we're glad he defended his son. And that's the last we hear of Joash. And then at this point, we're told in Judges 6 that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And Gideon sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. That was his little insignificant clan, the Abizrites. They were called out. To, so they, they were Israelites. They were Jews. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So you've got all of these Hebrews coming together, and they amass a 32,000-man army. 32,000 men. Now, they're not necessarily hardened soldiers. They're still not in a good position to overtake the Midianites. Uh, they're still really outmatched. But it's better than nothing. And so now Gideon is clothed with the spirit and he's ready to go. He's ready to lead this army and fight. But he says, okay, let me just check one more time, Lord, that you're really with us. So if you know the name Gideon, and this story is not totally new to you, you probably think first and foremost of Gideon's fleece. And this is a very strange episode in which he tests God two times. He says, God, before I go, I just want to make sure that you really do want this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this fleece and I'm going to lay it out on the ground. And in the morning, I want the fleece to be wet with dew and I want the ground to be dry. So that, that'll confirm that you actually want me to do this. Okay. So God condescends. He tolerates Gideon's continued doubt. Gideon isn't doing a heroic thing. He's not doing a wise thing. We're often told that Gideon did a wise thing here. He's really just confirming. No, he's continuing to doubt, but, but God tolerates it because God is very gracious. And so the next day, he says, okay, good. The fleece was wet and the ground was dry. Okay, one more time, God, let's do this. I'm gonna put out the fleece again. Now, I want it to be dry in the morning and make the ground around it wet. And God does it. Now, the first time I read this as a young Christian, I, I think I said this out loud to myself in my room. What does this ancient weirdo and his wet blanket have to do with me? <laughs> I was really struggling as a young Christian as I'm reading through these Old Testament stories wondering, I, God has given this to us. All of a sudden, I have this burden on me. I was a college student. I had enough to, to study. My duty to God now involves understanding these weird ancient Near Eastern stories. Why? Such a strange way for God to reveal himself to me. I am a, at that time, 20th century person, late 20th century, now we're all 21st century people. What does this have to do with us? Well, there's one important thing to say that the text doesn't point out. We know that Baal was this god of fertility. Well, <clears throat> not just sexual biological fertility, like multiplying my family and multiplying my um, goats and sheep and all of those sorts of things, but also it had to do with the fertility of the land. So he was the god of the winter storms and the summer dew. And so the water on the ground in the summer and the spring, that the mist that causes the crops to grow, Baal provides. That's what the Canaanites believed. So if you truly are lord of all and you really do have power over Baal, then can you put the dew on the fleece? And can you keep the dew off the fleece? He's just checking, just in case. So God is very kind with him. And now he's ready to go. 
And so God responds by testing Gideon two times. Gideon tested him two times, now God is gonna test him back twice. So he says, take your 32,000 men, and as you're all prepared for battle, I want you to ask them this. Anyone who's afraid, if you find yourself, you're afraid and you don't wanna fight, you're free to go. You're not pressed into service. Completely free and clear. 22,000 men leave. 10,000 are left behind. So you think, okay, good. Weed out the weaklings and let's just take the real soldiers. We're, we're, we're down a few thousand men, but everyone here is a true fighter. Well, probably not. Maybe some of them are rash and fooling themselves. Maybe the ones who really are true soldiers, they know what war is and they're like, yeah, I'm afraid. <laughs> they're actually the ones who can fight because they've actually seen it. Maybe the 10,000 left behind are naive. Who knows? I don't really know. But that's not what God is up to. He's not trying to get the real soldiers. He tests Gideon again. He says, take them down and have them drink water from the stream. And any normal person would reach down, with water with, with your, uh, reach down for water with your hands and drink out of your hands. But 300 weirdos lean down and lap water like a dog. And he said, those 300 guys, that's who you're gonna take to battle. That's God's plan. Because if you were to go into battle with 32,000 against who knows how many thousand hardened Midianites, maybe you would pull it off. And if, if the Lord is with them, they certainly would pull it off. They certainly would be victorious. But they might then be tempted to say, we've delivered ourselves. We have defeated the Midianites. God says, no chance. I'm gonna make this an impossible task for you. So he takes 300 goofballs into battle against the Midianites. That night, he says, before they go out to battle, he says to Gideon, sneak down to the camp and just see that I've given it to, into your hands. If you're afraid, you can take your servant uh, Pura with you. So he goes down with his servant because he's still afraid. And he listens there and there's a Midianite talking and the Midianite says, I just had a dream. And I saw a barley cake, like a little piece of barley bread, roll into the camp in my dream and it crushed a tent, flattened a tent, just barley cake rolled in. And, and another Midianite goes, oh, you know what that means? The barley cake, that's Gideon. He's gonna roll in and destroy our camp. This is so weird. This is so obscenely strange, right? Who has dreams about barley cake? And then how did the other guy know that that was about Gideon coming in? But Gideon hears this and he worships God and he's just overjoyed and he knows. He knows that God is with him. And so he goes back to the 300 men and you might remember this part. They each take torches and they put it in a pot to hide the light and then they take trumpets and they surround the camp of the Midianites. And then at his call, they destroy the pots, they reveal the torches. The Midianites think that there are thousands and thousands of soldiers, there couldn't just be 300 people, right? Who would do such an insane thing? So they think there's a massive army around them, they blow the trumpets, they start yelling, and the Midianites go into a complete panic and they start killing each other. The camp breaks down and they go into complete retreat. And Gideon and his men start chasing them down, and picking them off as they go, and he kills a couple of the Midianite princes, there's two Midianite princes, and they're fighting through the night and through the next few days, and they're very tired, they're famished, they stop in some Israelite towns and they ask for some food, and the Israelites are, maybe they're worried that they're not actually gonna overtake the kings, and the kings are gonna then regroup and come back, and so they wanna make sure they're on the right side, and they said, well, if you don't have the kings, you haven't captured the kings yet, uh, we're not gonna give you food. And so Gideon is very angry with this, they eventually get enough support from other Israelites coming and they go and they go across the Jordan, they capture the kings, they bring them back, and they execute the kings, 
And then Gideon is so angry. He goes back to those towns. He burns one of the towns down. He kills all the men. He goes to another town. He flails all their elders. Very vicious and violent. Gideon is by no means a perfect man. Very flawed man. Israel then does something foolish. They say, Gideon, why don't you be our king? And Gideon says, I I don't really want that, but could everybody give me a little bit of gold? So he takes gold from everybody, and he makes a religious ornament called an ephod. And we're told that it became a snare to his family. probably became something like an object of worship. And so Israel is still not completely getting it. And they stay roughly faithful to, to Yahweh until Gideon dies, and we're told in Judges that they go back to worshiping false gods. So the cycle continues. Uh, Well, okay, so let's think about this for a second. Let's make a couple observations. First of all, this story is really unsettling. We don't think of the God of love, our Savior, um, as being a God who orders us into war. Now, again, let's recognize the difference between the church and Israel. It's not going to alleviate all of our worries about this, but there's a big difference. Israel is a nation, and so they have military requirements. And a nation defending itself is not just a good thing, it's a necessary thing. If you have good things to protect. If you're a just nation, um, if you have a nation of freedom and rights and prosperity, you would wanna protect those things from anyone who wants to take them away, and it would be not just a good thing, it would in fact be a just thing for you to do. So. They need to have this sort of thing, so it's going to involve sometimes some military action, but still it seems a little bit vicious for us. Um, We can't think of the people of Canaan, however, as these peaceful hobbits on the Shire like Frodo and Samwise, and these evil Israelites come through and they torch everything. It's actually the other way around. The Israelites aren't peaceful hobbits either, but the Canaanites are definitely orcs. They're definitely the most vicious. The ancient world is just very different. The modern world, even outside of the church, has been so infected with the Christian way of viewing things that they don't realize that valuing children is not native to our ungodly thinking. Seeing ourselves as equals and value, things like human rights, that's a Christian idea. It doesn't naturally come out of any other view of things. And so the modern world has been so infected with Jesus' teachings that even those who aren't in the church, they breathe in the air and they don't even realize it. The ancient world didn't see things this way. So God was rightly judging these people and using Israel as a tool of judgment, and God has the right to do that. Doesn't alleviate all the problems. But then, of course, there's the weirdness of it, like the barley cake rolling in and flattening the tent. So strange. Who thinks this way? And so we're tempted to translate the weirdness out of it and domesticate it and make it make all perfect sense to us as 21st century people. We've already translated it from ancient Hebrew into English. That was a big step. Now let's translate out the weirdness. Well, that's not gonna happen. Uh, It's just you're never going to get all the weirdness out of the the biblical accounts, Um, and that's important. God has given us these accounts, these accounts that are very foreign to us for a purpose, for our edification. We find ourselves in a certain time and place, and we've got certain things right. We see things uh, from a certain modern perspective that gives us a real advantage over ancient people in various ways. For example, we're heliocentrists. We know that the sun is the center of the solar system. They were geocentrists. They thought that the earth was the center of the solar system. It made sense at the time, but it was flat out wrong, and it led to some serious errors. Um, Maybe not, you know, like a daily error that would affect your life, but in bigger things, it was just just wrong. And so we've got some things right. And we look back at them and we think, oh, so silly. Um, 
but we also have some things that are just dead wrong, and they had it right. That's not always so obvious to us because our weirdness is just normal to us. Their weirdness is obviously weird. <laughs> so they would look at us and they would say, what are you people doing, right? You might talk to a friend and say, hey, where were you Friday night? I didn't see you, I thought you were gonna come. And your friend says, oh, yeah, I just, I was so tired. I just, you know what? I ended up looking at pictures of cats on Instagram for four hours. I <laughs> realized it was two in the morning, right? We've been there. Don't act like you haven't been there. We've been there. That is a modern weird thing. They would not understand that. But you'd say to your friend, yeah, yeah, I know. It's one of those nights. It was a cat Instagram night or whatever. So it should remind us that we don't always have it right. And our perspective isn't the only perspective. And God has given us these stories, these accounts, real history and poetry and things like this so we would enter into it. Much of my job as a teaching pastor is just recounting these things for you. Uh, of course, then the next bird, they say, okay, well, tell us what that means for me. Apply it. And uh, that's an important task of pastoral ministry, but in, let me just say it's somewhat overblown because that's largely the job of the Holy Spirit to apply it in your life. We are to speak these stories to one another. We are to speak these hymns to one another, to encourage each other in this, to sharpen each other with us, sometimes argue over it in fellowship, in friendship, without division, but sharpen one another. And we more deeply move into these stories and it affects our thinking. When we get through the weirdness and we understand the profound truths, it affects our minds. And guess what happens? When your mind is infected, it, it, it then trickles down to your heart and it begins to change your behavior, the way that you see others, the way that you treat others. So if you are deeply unsatisfied with the way that you're behaving, and I've had this situation where I couldn't change, we can start with changing our thinking and our understanding of God and meditating on these stories, speaking them to one another. So I can't uh, apply all of it and get all the weirdness out, but let's try a little bit of application. In this Unlikely series, we're talking about four figures, two deliverers, one king, and one prophet. The two deliverers are Moses and Gideon. The king that we'll look at next week is David, and then finally a prophet, Daniel. Four very important figures, and we'll see again these themes always repeated through Old Testament history. Jesus Christ is the ultimate deliverer. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. All of the, the kings of Israel are only foreshadowing and prefiguring this ultimate king whose throne would never be overtaken, an eternal throne. Jesus Christ is the final prophet. There is no prophet to come after him. He's the fulfillment of the deliverers, the judges, the kings, and the prophets. All of that is prefiguring him. And Isaiah tells us many hundreds of years after Gideon that this is exactly the case. Next month, we're gonna start thinking about the incarnation at Christmas. And this is a verse that we all know pretty well, or maybe you've seen on a, on a Christmas card. It comes from Isaiah 9, 6. For us, to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is God taking on human flesh. Um, Isaiah is, is foretelling this. And before he says this, he's talking about this Messiah who's to come, and He's saying that the rod of his, his oppressor, the rod of Israel and the church's professor, uh, sorry, oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So he, Isaiah recounts what Gideon did in leading the Israelites against the Midianites. He says, just as you broke the Midianites, so you will break our oppressor in this, in this new Messiah, this new deliverer who's to come. So we can compare Gideon and Jesus we can compare their character, or we can compare their missions. 
Gideon, as we mentioned, is a very flawed, reluctant deliverer who made all sorts of excuses and tested the, the Lord. Remember, Moses did the same thing. God said to Moses from the burning bush, I want you to go, and I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and the first thing that Moses says is, I'm not the guy. I've got a stuttering problem. I'm slow of speech. You want me to go tell him this? I'm not a speaker. And so, of course, God allows him to take Aaron with him, takes away all of his excuses, and does a miraculous work that Moses himself couldn't have done. He couldn't have threatened Pharaoh. He couldn't have tricked Pharaoh. He couldn't have reasoned him into letting his people go. Moses made excuses. Gideon made excuses. Jesus Christ is a perfect and obedient deliverer who readily accepts the Father's commandments. Not my will, but your will be done. Gideon was clothed with the Spirit temporarily, still a very flawed man. Jesus Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is pervaded by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, in fact, his property. In John 20, he breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes right out of him. He's the one that fills with the Spirit. And just as Gideon sent away thousands of soldiers at God's command, Jesus chased away thousands of followers. He was feeding huge groups of people. He was doing these impressive miracles. And then in John 6, he says something so outlandish. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part in me. We read that and we think, oh, communion. Yeah, I'm ready for communion. They were thinking cannibalism. And what would they have thought? And they said, this is a harsh, harsh teaching. Who can bear it? This guy is insane. Remember, Jesus' own half-brother, even Mary, thought, he's insane. And they all left. And so he turned to Peter and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, where am I supposed to go? You have the words of life. He's left with his disciples because his disciples had nothing to lose. They were literally nobodies. What were they going to do? Go back to their failing businesses? They had nothing. They weren't rich. They weren't powerful. They didn't have authority. And so he chased away the, 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 the crowds so that the resurrection and the birth of the church and the fall of the Roman Empire, no one could chalk up to human efforts. God alone did that. So now let's ask ourselves a couple things and we're gonna go into a time of reflection. I want you to keep these things in mind. The first thing that we might ask is, okay, God works through this unlikely figure Gideon and he does an unlikely work through Jesus Christ, born in a manger, very unlikely coming of a king. Am I more like Gideon or am I more like Jesus? And most of us are gonna say, well, I'm more like Gideon. Unlike, unfortunately, I'm often resistant. I know that God is asking me, calling me, commanding me to do certain things, and I know that I'm reluctant. I know that I put him off. In some cases, it's been years and years and years, and I have some regret about it, but I'm just a flawed person like Gideon. I'm not Jesus, and we excuse ourselves, but let's not comfort ourselves and excuse ourselves. Let's do what the apostles say and strive to emulate Christ-likeness, and so it's fine that we're like Gideon. God is working in us, but our model is Jesus Christ, perfect and complete obedience, and you won't accomplish it in your strength, but he's with us. We can also compare their missions, recognize that God takes things out that we might trust in, uh, takes things out of Gideon's life, like 32,000 soldiers that he might trust in. Is he taking things out of our lives that we might trust in? You might pray and reflect and ask your closest friends. If, if you can't tell, get some counsel from others and ask them, are there things that you think that I'm trusting in? Um, when, when it really comes to a time of crisis, I might not turn to God. I might be immediately prompted to turn to these other things. 
Maybe I'm blinded to it. What do you think those things are? Pray about it and find what these things are. The first step is for God to identify them in your life. That's an important first step. Those are things that we can reflect on. And then finally, just recognize that God uses unlikely people. And let's think about just for a moment how he does it. So when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, Gideon says, here's my name. I am in a bees right. We are nobodies. We are absolute nobodies. You don't want us. The Midianites, you don't want us. You got the wrong guy. I'm a nobody. What does the angel call him? You mighty man of valor. So ironic. You mighty man of valor. But that's true for us as well. So Jesus says that no one is good except God alone. He tells the rich young ruler that. The rich young ruler comes to him with a question and he says, no one is good but God alone. Yet in Matthew 25, the Lord calls us good and faithful servants. When were we good and faithful? We know that God alone is holy, that Jesus alone is God's beloved son. And yet in Colossians 3, we're call, called holy and beloved. Only God is holy and yet we're called holy. Only Jesus is beloved and yet we're called beloved. Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, and yet we're declared righteous in Jesus Christ. We are, by nature, in ourselves, in our own strength, evil, unfaithful, unholy, unloved, and unrighteous. And he calls us good, faithful, holy, beloved, and righteous. That's outlandish. That's unfair. That's not right. But it's what God determines to do. It's mercy. Like orphans who have nothing. And in fact, maybe we have a bad name, a terrible name. When they hear our name, our family name, they grab their purses. They grab their children's hands and they leave quickly because those people are coming around again. Watch out for those people. They're nobodies, they're no good. That's who we are. And we're adopted by a good and benevolent king who gives us his name and all of his wealth. So when we do something right, you will do things that are right and noble and charitable in your life, and someone will come and thank you and say, you're great, you're, you're wonderful, thank you so much. That's such a nice thing to hear when people say complimentary things and they think that you're, you're wonderful, that you've done a really good thing. But here's something that we have to know. There's nothing right in us. We have borrowed Jesus' righteousness. It was given to us. He is full of righteousness. This is what happens on the cross. We say he died for our sins. He took our sins, the cancer in us, on himself, but didn't leave us hollow. Then he breathed into us his goodness. It's his goodness. So we are blessed. We do good things. We do right things. We do noble things occasionally. It's with his goodness that we do it. It's by his prompting, like children learning to do things with your mother or father's hands guiding you as you're, I don't know, baking the cake or something like that. A child can't do it on his own or her own. And the Holy Spirit moves us in those things and we actually move in his righteousness. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were, were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let, no, uh, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Gideon became a conqueror, 
because he was clothed with the Spirit and the angel of the Lord was with him. We are more than conquerors because we're filled with the Spirit and Jesus promised to be with us even till the end of the age. He told that to, to the apostles and the apostles made disciples and died and the disciples made disciples and died and those disciples made disciples and died and here we are today. We are spiritual descendants of them. And Jesus said, I will remain with you, with the church. So what the angel of the Lord said to Gideon, O mighty man of valor, he's saying to you. And you would rightly respond, I think you got the wrong guy. I think you got the wrong lady. I'm not what you say. That doesn't seem right. Well, who's right? <laughs> who's right? He said, I'm giving you my name. You don't have any righteousness in you. Here's mine. Now move in it. You don't have any holiness in you. You can't do it in your own strength. Here's mine. It's yours. We are adopted into his family. So we're going to look at a video now of a very unlikely individual with a very unlikely testimony, God moving in his life and doing some of the things that we talked about. My name is Kenny McLean, and this is how Jesus became the hero of my story. Back in high school, I was really kind of um, curious and infatuated with uh, spiritual things. So I really kind of uh, wondered about um, Satan. Even though I grew up in the church, I still had, for whatever reason, this, this curiosity towards um, the, the spirit realm. Every time in my room, and I, I would, um, I would worship the devil. I would, I would seek him. I would, um, I don't. Know, it's really hard to explain. A lot of weird and crazy, um, evil spirit manifestations happened. I kind of had this epiphany, going through all that, that if there was a, a dark side, then there was a, a light. There was, there was a good side. A lot of those times were really horrific. And, and terrifying, and I wanted to get out of it. I wanted to, to kind of get away from that, but of course, I had no means. I had no way of getting out. And I remember one night in my, in my room at nighttime, um, trying to go to bed, but just feeling tormented and feeling this overwhelming um, fear and this, this, this weight that is so heavy on me that I just uh, lifted up my hands and, and surrendered to God and I started singing um, some worship songs that we would sing during in youth group. Um, one of them was No Sweeter Name and which says there's, there's hope for the hopeless. You are the light in the darkness, the life, the truth, and the way. And um, I will exalt you. You know, you are my hiding place, my safe refuge. Because you're with me, I will not fear. So during, during that time, God literally rescued me. I called to him and, and he miraculously rescued me out of that and, and delivered me from the darkness, from the evil spirits. You would think after a divine encounter after that, someone would get um, kind of their act together and really kind of been on, on fire for God. And even though I was going to church, I felt um, like I couldn't talk about it to anybody. So I just kind of kept it to myself and just kind of lived my lived my life the same way in high school I wouldn't 
smoke weed, go to parties, drink, and kind of continue in that lifestyle. Honestly, there's there's no reason why I should I should be saved. I shouldn't even be allowed to to know what the gospel is. But yet, God in His in His mercy, um, because even though I'm I'm unworthy, God sees me as someone that has value, as someone that, that is worth something to him, and that I can have um, an identity as, as a child of God. Um, I really consider myself uh, a prodigal child, as someone that, that came back from the world, um, was embraced by, by the Father so compassionately, but left multiple times out again. But each time I came back, the Father uh, didn't chastise me, but rather embraced me and still told me that He loved me and that He had a purpose for me through all this. Um, what, what is different now in my life? Um, I know that the devil comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, and that he's, he's a liar. And uh, what, um, what saint has destroyed in my life God has, has made new. In fact, he didn't just build my life from, from the rubble of my past. He just cast that all away and made something new. Um, whatever the devil stole from me, um, God has restored. I love Kenny. Kenny, uh, I've known Kenny for, I think, three or four years now. And uh, what an amazing young man. What courage it takes to tell his story. Uh, there's actually a longer version that we're going to end up putting on the webpage. So in a few days, watch that. He really talks about uh, more of his journey. And I love this as he talks about how he feels so unlikely that God could ever do anything in him or through him. You see God bring unlikely people coming around him to pour into him. And I just think it's such a Jesus story, right, of taking what uh, looks to be throwaway, old, useless, uh, no good, destroyed, and he breathes life into it. And that's Kenny's story, and that's my story, and that's your story. We're all unlikely. So we're going to take a, a moment here as we close with the song, and I want to encourage you to think about that. If you look at the enemy and his lies, it usually comes out in fear for us. Uh, we don't feel like we measure up. We can't. Uh, we shouldn't. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how challenging uh, my marriage is, how, how I struggle with this or that or the things that I do? And God says, I see it. I see it all, and I love you, and I invite you to come into relationship with me because I am making all things new again, and that's true of that. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite our ministry team forward. Uh, and this is an opportunity for you, whether it's something you've heard in Gideon's unlikely story, the movement in that culture, that unlikely movement that God did, or it's something that has just been on your heart for time because Jesus wants to do a good work in you because hope changes everything, everything. 
And it starts with this, a step of faith of saying, yes, Jesus, I can't, you can. Pray with me. Father God, we are looking to your love shows up person of Jesus today. And we understand his powerful work, a work that we cannot do, but a work that you want to do. And we know it starts with the little things. So Father, in this time, I pray for each person here. I pray for myself, Father, that you would stir in my heart and I would have the courage and not let fear be the voice. And I would say yes to you. And I'd surrender whatever you want me to surrender to you to let you be the true Lord of my life. And so, Father, I pray for each person. You know what that is and what you are doing in their lives. I pray you would draw them to you. I pray for that person here who's never said yes to Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. That they're allowing that barrier, that, that sin, uh, and that and pride of saying, Lord, yes to you. I want to say yes to you. And we understand that it starts with us saying, we can't do it. We need Jesus' work on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins, to bring us into his rightness, righteousness, his relationship with him. And that's as hard and as easy as a step of faith. And so, Father, I pray you'd stir in the hearts of those people that are here before us today that don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. And they would say in faith, yes to Jesus, and start that relationship with him. And, Father, I pray for the ministry team here that are ready in front and in back to pray with people. Father, whatever you're doing in our lives and hearts, we want to come together with uh, our family. And we just want to pray, talk about it, and have you speak over us. Uh, and do your mighty work. So, Father, this is your time, your moment. Have your way with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.